Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love the power of story, the power of journey. I love learning from those who have already experienced success at their craft and also faced some adversity and learned how to deal with that adversity and use that adversity to perform better. We're all a compilation of the stories that we hear and the stories that we tell ourselves. So as you listen, I think it's important to think about how these stories and journeys impact you and relate to your story. I really created this podcast because I love finding out from experts of craft how they got to where they are today. And I'm just a pretty curious guy, and I love finding out how people have developed their mindset for performance. So this podcast really aims to dive deep into people's journeys and really find out how those journeys have shaped their mindsets. I've been really fortunate. I talk with athletes, I talk with coaches, CEOs, actors, really anyone who considers himself to be an elite performer, to get a better sense of how they've interpreted their journey, their life, and how they've developed their mindset for performance. So the hope is that as we go beyond the surface with our guests, you begin to go beyond the surface with yourself as well, and really focus on how do I develop the mindset for performance? How do I develop the mindset for preparation? How do I mold those two together to bring out the best version of myself? So with that, I'm really excited to bring Coach Chris Caputo to the Beyond the Surface podcast. Coach Caputo is the University of Miami's men's basketball associate head coach, where he works alongside Jim Laranega, who was previously at George Mason University when they made their run to the Final Four. And Coach Caputo has been at Coach Laranega's side for the last 15 years. And you'll hear Coach Caputo's story as a basketball player in high school and his experience playing Division III basketball as well. What's really cool about Coach's story and his journey is it starts as a kid, and he'll talk about his dad and the influence that both his parents had on him from a young age. But he also will take you to George Mason, where they had this incredible run, and they're really the first mid-major to get to the Final Four. So he'll talk about that experience and what led to them creating that kind of culture that would really allow them to do something that was thought to be pretty impossible before they did it. So really good stuff from Coach Caputo as he reflects on his experience at George Mason. Coach, as you'll find out, is a sponge. He's someone who's a constant learner. He's a constant grower. And that's how I've gotten to know him. He reached out to me a few years ago because he wanted to learn more about my craft. And in our conversation today, you'll hear about Coach Laranega's long history with sports psychology as well. So Coach Caputo is an open-minded guy. He's someone who's always trying to get better. He's extremely driven. He'll talk about hustling and working hard and trying to find a way in a career that is very competitive and that a lot of people want to do. And as someone who did not play Division I basketball or professional basketball, what Coach Caputo has been able to create for himself and for his players that he has served for the last 15 years is pretty incredible. So if you're in the D.C. area, he's someone that you're familiar with because of his roots at George Mason. But you're, if you're connected to basketball at all, you probably have heard of Coach Caputo at some point just because he's that type of guy. He's always building relationships, networking with people, and really learning. So I really respect him for that, and he really knows his stuff. He's someone that I learned from and certainly learned from in this conversation. So without further ado, I present Coach Chris Caputo as we go beyond the surface. Chris, if you could just start, tell me about your upbringing. So I always like to start with people's stories and, and sure. their, their upbringing. So tell me about childhood and what was life yeah. like in your household? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm from New York originally. Um, I'm a, uh, uh, you know, an outer boroughs guy. My parents are from Brooklyn. I'm from Queens. Um, you know, kind of spent a lot of time, uh, you know, Brooklyn, Queens, Manhattan, Long Island, uh, typical of, uh, many Italian Irish guys, uh, you know, kind of in that, in that world, went to Catholic, you know, Catholic school growing up, Catholic high school. Um, and, uh, my, but, but my background was maybe a little bit unique. My mom was a, was a nurse, but my dad is a, you know, 40, 50 year, uh, jazz musician in New York. And, uh, so, you know, I, in, in some ways, uh, was, had a very typical childhood of, of, you know, playing sports and things like that in, in Brooklyn and Queens. Uh, but, uh, in other ways, you know, having a dad who's an artist and, uh, a musician sort of getting exposed to that world, uh, as it related to, you know, kind of being a guy in New York city who, uh, played music, uh, my dad, that is, you know, I, I kind of, uh, saw a little bit of a different side of the world through his eyes, uh, maybe a little bit different than most of my friends growing up in, you know, in Brooklyn and Queens. Was religion a big part of your upbringing with the Catholicism? Uh, yeah, I would say yes and no. You know, I think my, uh, my, my parents weren't overly religious, uh, but, but, you know, kind of that generation prior to them, you know, the grandparents, the, uh, people came over, you know, immigrants or first generation, Italian Americans, uh, you know, the church was a big thing and, and sort of it, you know, whether you play in sports, it was, you know, you played CYO and you played, um, you know, sort of at the church, you know, the gyms were church gyms or you played in the park. Uh, but a lot of it was sort of connected to, to the church. And then, you know, the best basketball, obviously being a basketball guy, the best basketball, uh, was being played in the, you know, the Brooklyn Queens Catholic League, uh, high school leagues, you know, so I went to Archbishop Malloy High School and played for the legendary Jack Curran, who, uh, you know, was sort of a Morgan Wooten for the New York area. Um, and so, yeah, that, I think religion was a part of it, uh, but it was, you know, maybe not so much the faith part of it being the main thing. It was almost a social community sort of part of it. And just go back briefly. So dad being a jazz musician, uh, traveling a lot, what were sort of the lessons you learned yeah, from him? Um, you know, he didn't travel too much. Obviously there's a lot of work in, in, in that area and obviously Manhattan. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the, the two things I would say is, you know, you learn about diversity. Uh, you know, obviously, um, jazz music is, uh, sort of a multicultural, uh, sort of thing. And so, you know, if you're growing up in, you know, a lot of times New York can be sort of, uh, uh, you know, different neighborhoods. You got, Hey, Italian, Irish people live here. You know, Jewish people live here, you know, uh, Hispanic people live here. And, and while it's a big melting pot, sometimes you can kind of get caught in your own neighborhood. Whereas, uh, in, in my dad's case, you know, just, being uh, somebody who came from a, a, a profession that was so diverse, I was exposed to all sorts of people at a young age. Um, 
and as you can imagine, some characters, you know, in that world, too, at a young age. Um, and then also, I think, you know, the idea, this is probably the biggest thing was, you know, the idea that you could decide to be something different than, you know, a, a, you know, a cop, a firefighter, a teacher, uh, or go work on Wall Street. You know, if you're from Brooklyn and Queens, those are like sort of the options, <laughs> you know, try, try your hand in, in the business world, uh, you know, in lower Manhattan or go get a safe job being a, uh, a teacher or if you want to, you know, go, go be a cop and be a firefighter. There's a lot of, you know, guys in, in my neighborhood or even, you know, they got to high school. That was sort of their tracks, you know. So for somebody to say, hey, I think I'm going to become a jazz musician, it was sort of as, uh, you know, as strange as it may have seemed. It probably didn't seem as strange then later on to say, hey, I think I want to be a college basketball coach, even though I'm not a Division One player or, you know, a great player or anything like that. So, um I think I got a little bit of inspiration there from him knowing that, you know, you could, you could maybe try to do a little bit different type of job for a living. Sure. So I'm sure creativity and, you know, beat to your own drum and, and do your own thing. Were you, so obviously if I think of jazz and I think of Harlem immediately, um, yeah. were you ex- exposed to that side of, of the music industry or yeah. was, it, yeah, se- my, was yeah. it separate for you? No. Yeah. You know, I would pal around with my dad, you know, uh, you know, going to, uh, you know, Times Square to get his instruments fixed or, uh, you know, going to the union, uh, which was a union in, in Midtown Manhattan for musicians union. So I'd be kind of around there, obviously being in the car and listening to at that time, you know, like tapes or the radio of, of, of jazz or Frank Sinatra, people like that. So I was, I was exposed to that world and, and, you know, obviously watching him, uh, you know, play at different places and things like that. So, yeah, I was pretty keenly aware of, of the New York uh, sort of music scene, you know, by that time in the 80s and stuff. It was I'm sure it was changing from what it may have been in the 60s and 70s and things like that. But it was, uh, you know, again, I, I would just say a unique experience for most most people would haven't haven't been exposed to that sort of world uh like I was. And did, did you play instruments growing up? It was, yeah, poorly. Like, you know, I tried <laughs> to play the sax and, and stuff like that, but I was, I was not as into it uh, or as disciplined with it. Um, you know, kind of have a l- love of music because of it, but n- no real gifts as it relates to uh, music or, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure out if I have gifts as it relates to anything, but, <laughs> but certainly uh, music. We'll get to your gifts in a little bit, but <laughs> mom, mom was a nurse. Was she a, a nurturer? What, what was her sort of? Yeah. Yeah. She was, uh, you know, hardworking, you know, she was a infant tech. Uh, she, she, she took care of, uh, you know, babies when they were first born. Um, so she, uh, you know, she worked at a hospital where I was born and, and did that for, you know, 40 plus years. And, uh, my mom was, is, is, is still very much a, uh, you know, pretty straight and narrow person. And it's sort of, uh, you know, kind of their relationship kind of works because my dad is a little bit of a free spirit and laid back. And my mom's a little bit more of a, you know, follow the rules and, and, uh, you know, follow the procedures, uh, like, like most, uh, you know, probably healthcare people are. Which of those would you align more with? Yeah. Good question. Um, 
you know, I would say maybe a little bit more like my dad, uh, in that respect. And, and, and maybe I yearn a little bit to be more like my mom in some ways, you know, you, you I guess you always try to take the, uh, whatever you feel like the, the really good traits are and, and, uh, and, and, and try to emulate those as best you can, you know, in, in, in your own way. What, what traits or, or values did they pass down to you? Well, again, I, I think, uh, I think going back, you know, they never, uh, you know, I don't think they ever really, although they may not have said it, uh, they may have thought, well, you know, this is a little bit of a crazy idea to go, you know, we're paying for you to go. I was a division three player. Hey, we're paying for you to go to college. And you, you come back to us and say, after four years of us paying, you're going to go get a job that pays nothing. You know, I, coaching basketball, my, my parents are not real sports people. You know, they are now a little bit more because of, of my career over 15 years. But, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, when I call them, I, I don't even think my mom knew like that you could, you know, have a career coaching, you know, like, it's, you know, what kind of money could you make? What was that like? And yet, uh, so if you want to talk about traits, I would say, you know, just the uh, not not saying anything, you know, letting you, letting me kind of go for it. And, uh, you know, that probably goes back to my dad's uh, idea that he was going to be a professional jazz musician with no real training or background there. Uh, so from it's that interesting. respect, it's, I think it's that, interesting. That, that, it's interesting, Chris, because I went to Syracuse and uh, so private school. I remember coming home after my sophomore year. I majored in sociology, minored in African American studies, and minored in political science. And I came home my sophomore year, and I'm talking to my parents, and they, I was like, "Yeah, you know, I think I'm going to major in sociology or African American studies." <laughs> and they looked at me. I just remember them giving me a look. But they never said no. They never said you have to go study business or architecture or engineering. You know, they, they were they were fine with me sort of exploring my own path and my own journey. And at Syracuse, they're definitely, to your point earlier about like, what is your career path? At Syracuse, most of my friends were on the career path to then go to New York City and, and work in finance. And yeah. it just never crossed my mind as something that would fit what I was interested in or what I wanted to do. And, you know, I was at college. I always tell people I was really good at staying in the moment when I was in college. So much <laughs> so that like senior year comes around, second semester, and I'm like, oh crap, I got to figure out what I want to do and find a job. And, uh, <laughs> so, you know, I think, I think there's, there's value there. I think for, for a lot of young people, I think we tend to want to funnel them into a specific career path. And, you know, at 18, 19, 20 years old, I just, I just always wonder like, uh, maybe you'd be better off just learning and trying to grow and trying to be curious and then figure out what you're doing. Not that there's anything wrong with those that are engineers or, or are, you know, architecture or finance or whatever it might be. Um, God bless them that they know exactly what they wanted to do. But I know for myself, like I was two years out of college and I still had no clue what I wanted to do. So uh, it's interesting. I want to go back to your high school, high school career, or high school experience, so you're playing at you know this legendary Catholic basketball school. Um, what was that like for you? And I'm sure I know that that league has has amazing competition. And tell me about that experience playing yeah. playing at that school and and playing ball. Well, it was it was really great on two levels. One, you know, uh, you I think particularly this day and age, uh, I know you've I think I've heard you speak about this and. 
and and I'm sure it's something that comes up as as you you know do your job. Like uh, if you don't have any perspective as to how difficult it is to to be successful, uh, to be a you know a great high school player at a high level, to be a college player, to be a professional athlete, um, because you haven't been exposed to really the highest level of of that competition, and so it sort of skews your your mind as to uh, what it's all about and, and what it takes. I found out very, very quickly that, you know, being maybe the uh, one of the better uh, players, uh, uh, you know, even on my block, I mean, it was so competitive in New York at that time in the, in the 90s and uh, late 80s, or, you know, early, mid to uh, late 90s. You get to a place like Archbishop Malloy and, and the New York City Catholic League, and you find out very quickly uh, how how good everyone else is and sort of where you stand. So I, I think uh, I started to figure out, man, it would be great if I could even play in college because, man, everyone here is so good. Um, but also it exposed me to sort of the world of college basketball. You know, guys would be coming in to uh, recruit uh, guys on our team and, you know, Coach Curran obviously was someone who had a lot of experience, a lot of history. He was a legendary guy when I got there. Uh, uh, you know, so a lot of stories and you know, a lot of great players. And it, it, you sort of fall in love, at least for me, I fell in love with, you know, uh, maybe not only the game of basketball, which I loved, but, you know, the, I'll say the business of basketball, coaching, you know, being around it all the time. I saw guys come in and, you know, with their – polo shirts and their school on it and thought, wow, that'd be cool. I think I'd like to do that one day. Uh, not knowing anything really about what their job was like, but at least it was a romanticized uh, version of it. So, um, so the idea, perspective, that, it was great. The idea of coaching came into your mind in high school. Pretty early. Yeah. Pretty early. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I knew it wasn't going to be a great player. I thought I could play in college at some level, but the idea about, Hey, I'd like to do, I saw the effect that Coach Curran had on his players, and I think Coach Laranega, who you know my my boss here at Miami, who also played at Malloy, uh, he would say the same thing. You know that Coach Curran had such a great influence on him, and the thing that I I really uh, took from it was guys would come back, you know, and they'd come in his office, and he'd be talking to them about their lives and and their families and and what he could do to help them and. I thought what an amazing life he lived. He he was there for 50 years and you want to talk about having an effect on people just the, he coached baseball and basketball, the amount of people that came through that program uh, and either, you know, not only did they learn lessons that they took with them, but then some of the, some of the networking, some of the, you know, the ability for him to connect the dots for those guys to say, here's what you need to do. Here's who you need to get connected to. Uh, that led to those guys having great careers and great lives. You know, you look at that over 50 years, that many people, and I don't think you could help but think that that was a very, very, uh, you know, it was a life well spent, you know. Uh, so that, that that's what attracted to me, other than the love of the game, the effect that he was having on people and thinking, I'd, I'd like to be able to do this. Um, I don't know why I thought college more so than high school, but but I thought maybe you could do the same thing at the college level. Yeah, you're hitting on on sort of motivation 101, which is passion and purpose. And you yeah. know, the basketball part was easy for you; that was the passion. But you saw purpose in, in your coach, and 
and saw the life sort of work that he had. And most of the coaches that I've been around, if not all, truly, uh, when they have that purpose, that's when they are fulfilled. And, and when they lack that purpose and they're coaching kids who they don't feel purposeful or, or don't have intention with, that's when I think coaches can sometimes go awry. Um, yeah. I think when coaches have their passion and their purpose aligned, it frees them up to, to do great work, which is, which is really the idea that a coach is a teacher or, you know, a, a father figure or just, just someone that's trying to help somebody else get to where they want to go. Uh, and I think that's sort of coaching at the end of the day is your job is to help someone get from where they are to where they want to go. Um, so did you, did you grow up with siblings? What paint the rest of that picture for me? Was yeah, my, my, I have a, a sister from uh, my father's previous marriage and, uh, and then a younger brother, uh, who, 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 you know, we grew up, grew up in the house together. My sister's a good, good bit older than me. Um, and, uh, you know, so I had very, you know, good family structure as, it, as, it, uh, as it was, my brother is, was also sort of into sports on in a different way. He, he was, uh, you know, a uh, high school student that was kind of like a manager at Christ the King, which was like the rival high school, another great high school program. And, and he wound up writing uh, uh, for Slam Magazine and a couple other different publications, different sports. So he had, you know, a passion for sports as well in, in a different way. And who passed that on to you guys? Who put the ball in your hands? Was it dad or was it? Man, else? no, not really. You know, I think it was, um, you know, probably just the, the, the uh, way of life, you know, growing up in New York, you know, a lot, not a lot of football being played, a lot of, st- you know, a lot of stick ball, wiffle ball in the backyard type thing. So baseball was a sport that we loved. My grandmother loved baseball. And then basketball was, you know, it was kind of the city game. You're growing up in uh, the concrete jungle of, uh, of New York City and, and there's not a lot of indoor. There's not a lot of, you know, grass baseball fields, uh, but there are parks with, uh, you know, those uh, no nets. You know, we played in a lot of a lot of uh, park games where there was no net, no chain link, nothing. It was just you learn to shoot on a uh, a goal with no net and you become a pretty good shooter. You That's know? the way to do it. And, yeah. I mean, obviously there's a history of point guards uh, coming out of New York City. Yeah. Uh, I know how tall you are, so I'm guessing that you played point. But I yeah, I played wrong. point. I mean, again, not, 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 not like Kenny Anderson or Kenny Smith that played at my high school. Uh, but uh, – Again, I, I certainly tried to emulate those guys. <laughs> not very well, I might add. But in high school, you're, you're so you recognize. All right, I'm not gonna you know dunk like Kenny yeah, the we, Jet and, and yeah, we handle had, like we Kenny had a good Anderson. yeah we had a good team. We had a number of guys that played Division One in the team, so I was a backup. But uh, uh, you know, again, I I feel like we were very well coached, and and I felt like I worked really hard to become as good of a player as I could become, and uh, was it was fortunate enough to be recruited at the Division Three level. Um, and, you know, went to Westfield state, Massachusetts. And, and I, I did feel like when I got there, even, you know, while I wasn't the best player there, I was a guy who was very well prepared. You know, I I felt like I knew the game. I felt like I had been coached. Uh, and obviously you learn a lot at every step of the way, but I I did feel like to that point I was prepared by, uh, you know, by a very, very good system that we had in place at Malloy. And you, so you graduated high school. Did you have options to just not play anymore and go to a bigger school? No, yeah, no, I kind of always knew I wanted to play. I I had, you know, again, maybe going back to the passion. So, you know, uh, you know, go to Westfield State, Division Three school. Hadn't really seen the place even. Uh, 
uh, Rich Sutter, who's still the head coach there. It was his first year. He had been the assistant coach of Malloy uh, prior to uh, my time there, but I, I had a relationship with him, and uh, I was either going to go there or, or New York Maritime, which is another pretty good Division three program in New York, and uh, you know decided on Westfield State, and you know, it was a great, great experience as well, and sort of got – I always joke that I've, I've been so fortunate because, you know, New York City Catholic League. Then I go and play in New England, and obviously New England's got great basketball history, great prep schools, great you know just the whole uh, you know the game was you know uh, found in in Springfield, and and then you know working at George Mason, uh, being in the Washington Baltimore area, uh, I feel like I've been in like three of the best basketball places you could be, you know, and gotten a lot of exposure to so much as it relates to basketball. I want to just go back to the childhood real quick and then we'll, sure. we'll move on. Are there, are there any moments or stories that you have from your childhood that have helped shape how you go about your day to day? Um, you know, I, I would say this is, you know, the most interesting anecdote in ni- in 1997, the NCAA final, I was 17 years old. I was, uh, or maybe I was 16. I was going to be 17. I might've been a junior in high school, sophomore, junior. And, uh, I guess it was 96. The final four was in New York. Do you remember that Syracuse? Well, it's, uh, it's before my Syracuse time, but I know that I know the team. Right. You know, it was John Wallace, yep. John Wallace. And it was UMass Syracuse, uh, Kentucky wound up winning it, I believe. And, uh, uh, Oklahoma state, right. With, uh, big country. Okay. So that, that final four is in New York. And uh, my good friend, Guy Rancourt, who is now the head coach at Lycoming uh, Division Three in uh, Pennsylvania, he, we grew up on the block together. I mean, very good friends. And he, he's a little bit older than me. At the time, I think he was just out of college, and he was the assistant coach at the University of New Haven, I believe, Division Two. So here's two guys that, you know, two – absolute nobodies uh, and we are uh the final fours in new york and and guy says to me hey listen i'm i'm gonna go to it's like his first year coaching i'm gonna go to the hilton uh on sixth avenue that's like the the headquarters for the college coaches of the final four and uh, do you want to come with me uh, because there's one or two people he was going to meet there or something. So, you know, so here I am. I'm 16 years old. Um, I, I remember that Billy Donovan got hired, I believe, uh, either he might have gotten hired at Marshall or something that day. Because uh, I, I kind of remember that happening around that time. And um, so we go to the Hilton, and here I am, this guy who's like really loves college basketball. and I have a little bit of connection to it because of my high school, but I don't really know anything about it at all. And we show up at the Hilton and it's, you know, I see Jerry Tarkanian hanging out at the bar and I see Mike Krzyzewski in a suit walking through the lobby. And I see a number of other people, um, you know, with their, with their shirts on, with their, you know, their team. And, 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 and what we now kind of joke about the, the hallway at the final four, uh, for me at 16 years old, my eyes were, like wide open and thinking, wow, this is like, you know, this is incredible. And uh, I'm seeing all these famous coaches and just the excitement surrounding the final four. And I thought this is like, wow, this is great. And um, I don't want to say that, that 
they solidified me wanting to be a college coach, but certainly uh, the passion, the excitement for it uh, w- was really there that day. And I look back and 10 years later in 2006, I'm coaching in the final four uh, with George Mason in Indianapolis. And so anytime I, uh, you know, anytime you sort of like, like we all do start complaining about, you know, woe is me or I'm having a hard day or this is hard today or whatever. Uh, sometimes I got to draw back to that 10 year sort of time frame and say like, Hey, you know, you, you better stop because you are living the dream, you know? Uh, so it also, you know, reminds me to, uh, make sure I let the players know that, Hey, we can, th- all this stuff is possible. Uh, you know, with, with a little bit of luck, a little bit of work and a little bit of help. Yeah. I love that story. It just is sort of the idea of gratitude and the importance of gratitude. I, I use a story with my clients and the teams I work with all the time where I talk about the blue angels and, uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the Blue Angels before, but they're amazing to watch in person. And you know, they're flying these planes and going hundreds of miles an hour and putting their lives on the line every time they fly. But right. they, uh, they, what they do is they wake up early in the morning, they go over their flight plan for the day. Uh, then they'll go up and they'll go out in the air and they'll practice their, their run. And then they'll come back to watch film. And <laughs> uh, if it sounds familiar, let me know. Um, they watch film of the of them flying. They watch film of their flight, <laughs> um, and then what they do, which is really cool, this is the part that's awesome. They sit around a table, like a round table, and they go around and they self critique. So they'll say, you know, hey, on the walk out to the plane, I just I wasn't quick enough with my left foot, or hey, when we were in the air, I was supposed to go left, and I actually jerked the plane a little right. Or they'll just be really hard on themselves. Um, and after that they will say, and I'm going to fix it. I'm going to fix the problem and I'm glad to be here. And (laughs) that's how they always end their self critique. And they say that they're (laughs) glad, they're glad to be there. And like it, it serves as a couple purposes. Number one, they're glad to be there because a, they know that they've got brothers and sisters, you know, flying overseas under enemy fire. And number two, it's one of the greatest honors to become a, a blue angel. Um, so they never, even though it's difficult and it's tiring and it's hard, they always want to remember that they're glad to be there. So I've, I've worked with teams before and they, <laughs> I've walked on campuses or walked in locker rooms where people will know me and they'll just say, Hey, Brian, glad to be here. Um, <laughs> but I just think it's such an important thing because to your point, like 17 year old Chris, was just so happy to be in that hotel surrounded by all these coaches that, you know, fast forward 15 years later or whatever it is, sometimes we can all forget where we are, where our feet are. And we lose track of like, oh, how glad am I to be in the position I'm in? Uh, especially people in sports. Like we all have this dream when we're younger or not all, but many of us will be like, oh, it'd be really cool to work in sports. And then we <laughs> completely forget that, oh, yeah, like we get to work in our passion. Um, you know, we, we should be glad, glad to be well, there. And I also, also think, like, I don't, I don't want to cut you off. Like, I, I think, like, some of that stuff, you know, I think we all want to be, you know, we all want to be doing it at the highest level. We'd like to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm watching uh, friends of mine coach here in the All-Star game. 
you know, all that stuff is great. You know, coaching the final four, coaching in the ACC, whatever, but like, that's all fake too. It's not, that's just for show. What you really got to ask yourself is you enjoy being around, at least in my job, like, do you enjoy being around the guys? Do you enjoy the process of, you know, preparation? Cause that's what we spend so much time doing. Do you, do you enjoy getting to know people because we do so much of that in recruiting? Um, and, and do you get any sort of purpose, like you said, out of, you know, trying to help people? Because if, if, just teaching them how to play a game uh, is the only thing that you're really doing. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, how, how fulfilled you'll really be long-term, you know, I think, uh, and, and what sort of dent you're going to make in, uh, in society. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, it is still a game. I, I think what the game has done for so many of us uh, is, is maybe a little bit of the bigger picture. I think it's such a, such a good point because I see it, especially at the college level. Like we, we glamorize sort of the college student athlete or even the pro athletes. Like we glamorize them and people really, unless they, unless they're around it and they can see it, it's hard work. And that's not to say, by the way, being, you know, a construction worker or a doctor or, you know, someone on wall street isn't a hard work too, but like, there are so many nuances and intricacies that come with doing your job, uh, especially coaching. I mean, it's, it's just, it's, it's hard, hard work. Um, and I think a lot of times all that the public sees is the shiny stuff. Um, and like Tom Coughlin in his book talked about, you know, you get paid to play in the NFL Monday through Saturday, Sunday's free. Like that's, yeah, right. That's, the right. Free that's part, fun. Right? right. Like that's, but the Monday through Saturday, that's where you're earning your paycheck. Um, and I do think like a lot of people that are outside of it don't see the Monday through Saturday, but then on the flip side of that, um, you know, I think sometimes we can forget that the Monday through Saturday is also, uh, where the memories are made. That's where the camaraderie is built. That's where, uh, the, the beautiful stuff happens. So I think you bring up some really interesting points that I think are important for people inside a sport that listen to this podcast to remember, but then also people outside of sport to also understand, you know, what's their Monday through Saturday? What's their process? You know, what are they doing to improve? What are they doing to prepare to perform? Um, and I want to go back to your dad real quick. Did he talk to you at all about performing and performing under pressure just because yeah, I think of a know, musician? It's funny, is, like, yeah, yeah he, um, he, he talked a lot. Of, it's funny. I think you would probably appreciate, you know, yeah. I, the the genesis of maybe starting to think about you know quieting the mind and you know um i don't know if i i don't know if i could maybe pull back to the exact terminology he would use but you know sort of being able to just do things you know my, my, almost uh being mindful and then you know I, i'll use the term train then trust you know like you know, being able to just do things, uh, with a quiet mind, you know, I think a lot of those things he would start to talk to me a little bit about, uh, you know, in his walk of life. And then also, you know, how it could be translated into sport. Um, and while he wasn't a huge sports guy, I think he understood that in in terms of performance, you know? Yeah. I think, Uh, I think like athletes in general, um, don't lean on the musicians of the world. Don't lean on the, 
the actors of the world. And like, I think of chefs, right? Like, like a chef has a recipe for success, but the chef also has to make their dishes with love in order for that dish to really taste special and unique. And if they're just going to always stick to the exact same recipe every time, you know, you're going to get like McDonald's, right? And it might be consistent, but it's not going to be special or it's not going to be unique. And I think an actor, I've talked to actors about this all the time. Like the actor's job is to know exactly what their line is, exactly what role they're in. But then when they get on stage to connect with the audience or to connect with the viewer and all of a sudden, if it seems like they are waiting for their line, then it's not good acting. Like it has to seem like they're almost improvising. And I think the athlete is the same way. It's like you rehearse, you train, you train, you train. And then to your point, all right, now we trust. And I go back to the San Antonio Spurs a couple of years ago, which I think for basketball people, like them in the NBA finals was the closest thing we've seen to like art. Like that (laughs) is like, I was at, I was at one of those games and, uh, uh, by, and obviously I was rooting for the heat because, and I love the Spurs, don't get me wrong, but I got my tickets from, uh, from the heat. So I was trying to root for the heat and, uh, they, um, they, uh, you know, I had to go out in the hallway cause they were just getting killed. <laughs> yeah. That, that, but that series was like the closest thing we've seen to like art, right? Like it was, it was music. It was uh, someone on Broadway. It was, you know, an orchestra just playing. And I think when basketball, especially is played like that or soccer is played like that or football is played and you just see it, it's clicking, but there's also, it's not forced. It's a flow to it. It's a, there's a rhythm, there's a dance to it. Um, I think that's what's beautiful. And when we think of our mentality in that way, it's like we rehearse, we rehearse, we rehearse, but then, you know, now's the time to sort of have this performance mindset. That's a big thing I talk about with my clients is the mindset for preparation is completely different than the mindset for performance. So like the mindset for preparation is all about being neurotic, being humble, the attention to detail, improvement. The mindset when you're performing is I know exactly what to do, how to do it, and I'm going to improvise and I'm going to adapt and I'm going to adjust. Um, and I, I think a lot of times athletes spend so much time in that preparation mindset that they can't switch over to that performance mindset. So that's like yeah. – How would you how, – how do you think – you know, it's an interesting. I think I heard you talk about this on one of the other podcasts. Uh, you know, like having humility in in preparation, right? And then, and then being a little bit cocky in performance. Is that yeah. is that the way you say it? You know? Yeah, I'll go as far as saying narcissistic uh, when we're performing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the, the question is, how do we train? Right? Like, how do we train that? How do we build that? Yeah. How do you fl- how do you get guys to flip that way? I think is. Yeah, you know, because as coaches, you're almost a little bit neurotic, you know, in preparation, uh, and then you try to be. I think you you do you you try to, you know, give them some confidence in performance. I don't think during the games being neurotic is is a good idea for, no, for the players. It's what leads to you choking? Know? It's it's yeah. it's linked to choking. There's been studies done. Um, so yeah, for me, there's a bunch of ways. Number one is first of all making them aware that like. We're going to train your mind to prepare different than we're going to train you when you're performing. Um, so it's just the, you first start with the awareness piece. But then I think also, I think great systems, great coaches uh, will also take the time to also train them in that performance mindset more often. Um, so right. I think most athletes have spent a, lo- a large chunk of their time preparing with that preparation mindset in mind. 
And so the more that you can get them into the performance mindset, the better. And I find it, especially with D1 athletes and pro athletes, is that a lot of times they train their mind for this preparation mindset, um, but they don't train their mind for that performance mindset. So, um, you know, how can you get them in that performance mindset? You know, it might be having them do some improv. It might be, you know, doing three on three tournaments. It might be, you know, every time, every time we, you know, I know you guys are big into like stats and and quantifying things. So it's like letting them know that when we're in practice, we're going to judge them. And, you know, with that judgment, this is time to execute. This isn't the time to work on snapping our wrist and building habits. So I don't yeah. minimize the preparation mindset. I think it's, it's crucial to improvement and growth and development. But I also think that what we don't do, not even in, just in sports, but in society in general, is build in time to practice performing. Um, and I think if, if we can do that, it will help build that muscle so that when they're in pressure, uh, they can switch to that. Um, but then there's, there's other things, right? There's, there's tools and techniques they can use to help them get to their performance mindset, whether it's their self-talk, whether it's how they're visualizing, um, whether it's their pregame routine. Um, so when I work one-on-one with athletes, I always am trying to get them, you know, into that performance mindset for when they need to be. Um, do you, do you think, you know, it's funny, I, I think that, you know, as you're talking about that, I can almost, you can almost say, um, you have two different types of athletes. You know, you have, sometimes you have guys who are great in the preparation. And like you said, and, and, and yet you need them to be a little bit more instinctive and, and, and playing a little bit more of a clear mind in competition. And then you have guys that are so instinctive and yet maybe their preparation is lacking, Absolutely. you know? And so how do you get, you know, the guys who are great in preparation to play a little bit, looser i guess or or more freely more clear of mind and then how do you get the guys who are great as it relates to their instincts to lock in during preparation i think that's probably that's a that's that's a big part of our job i would say yeah like i think you're in the business of fulfilling potential to help help your team win i think i'm in the business of fulfilling potential and i think part of what comes with fulfilling potential is getting people to shift um so like I'm not a one size fits all type of guy. Um, so I, I think it's, all right, what does this guy need? And look, like the best example we can give of the guy when the lights turned on that would show up and compete was Allen Iverson, right? Like, sure. you, like yeah. if, if you saw Iverson live, there was, there have been very few competitors like, like Iverson, but yeah. you know, there, there's also like, well, did he do that preparation mindset? Um, and, you know, I look at Iverson and Kobe and they came in the league around the same time. Um, and, and the thing that made Kobe special was that I think he had the preparation mindset when he needed the preparation mindset. And then he had the performance mindset when he needed the performance mindset. Um, yeah. So, yeah. so I think you're working both muscles if, if you can. And, and you're just figuring out, all right, like where do I need to work on the preparation side and where do I need to work on the performance side? And if you, if you ignore one of those, um, you know, you're just going to limit your potential. It doesn't mean you still can't be very, 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 very good. Um, when we talk about like filling the bucket of potential, I think, I think you need both. Um, but I want to go back to your story real quick. So sure. you're, you're playing D3 basketball and you uh, play there. And then when do you get into coaching? How do you get into coaching? Yeah, it was What's funny. Um, 
and, and by the way, I like talking a lot more about uh, all the stuff you're doing than, than about myself. Yeah, but, but this is all but, about but you. I'm happy, it's not about I'm, me. I'm happy to, uh, I'm happy to give you as much as I can. No, I, uh, I was, um, getting ready to finish college and coach Larinaga and I had met, you know, one of the things I would do a lot in college, like a lot of, you know, college basketball players, uh, at that time, especially as you know, you'd work camps. So you'd work all the different, you work all the different camps and you get to know people in coaching. I would go to a lot of AU tournaments or high school prep school events, uh, in new England while I was in school in Massachusetts, kind of, you know, hanging around, uh, just trying to be around the game, get to know people. And so obviously the connection coach Larinaga and I had, um, playing for the same high school coach. I, I basically badgered him, uh, to become a friend and, uh, <laughs> and a mentor. I kind of like uh, said, Hey, uh, I really like you to be my mentor because I need one in college basketball. Uh, and uh, so I would write to him and things like that. Back then, it was sort of the early days of email. And uh, I'll never forget, I was like, you know, in study hall or something like that. And uh, he he emailed me and said, hey, um, I've got an assistant coaching job open. I need you to apply for this job. And I thought to myself, you know, this is incredible. Like, here I am, a uh, senior in, in, in college. And you know, this is a very good mid-major program, a great coach, and he's asking me to apply for this assistant coaching job. Man, this is going to be easy. Yeah. And, of course, uh, when uh, when I get him on the phone in the next couple of days, he said, listen, you're not getting that job. I can't hire you in that job. You don't know anything. But uh, what I might do is uh, bring on a volunteer along with this new assistant coach that I hire, and, uh, you know, I'd like you to do that. So, uh uh, as I said earlier, I had to figure out a way to explain to my parents that, you know, having having paid for me to go to college, I now got a, a brand a, a job and that job paid zero dollars. Uh, uh, but I was moving to, to, to the D.C. area and I was going to be making no money and, you know, don't ask any questions. I'll just, you know, this is a great thing. <laughs> so like that. So there's two things I want to just dive into there. Number one, the idea that you're saying, hey, I need a mentor. Will you be my mentor? Um, like, I think, I think that's such an underrated thing to ask of someone, because I think when people ask me all the time, like, Hey, I'm interested in sports psychology. Would you be willing to get a cup of coffee with me? Or, or actually what they usually say is, can we jump on the phone? And I'll usually say, well, if you're in the area, I'd rather meet you in person and actually find out who you are. Uh, you know, I I don't think I'm going to really know much about you from being on the phone. Um, so that idea of, can you just sort of flesh that out for me a little more of that idea? Of the yeah, no, I, I would say I was sort of kidding there, you know, and that, and, and I'm not necessarily saying I asked that question, but what I did say was, you know, Hey, I want to get into coaching, you know, is there anything you would advise? And I think this is an important thing for people. I heard this, uh, from a guy a few years ago, and I, I think it's really true. You know, if you ask for a favor, from somebody, I think that, you know, they can either say yes or no. Right. I think when you ask for advice, um, they become very few people will will say no to giving you advice. Right. A lot of people want to, you know, give you their two cents. Uh, But I, but I think that the good, the good mentors and, and people, you know, probably very much like yourself, um, they feel like a little bit of an investment in, that advice that they give you. And so when you ask for advice, you, you have people who are now invested in, in 
you know, kind of you, you know, going forward with maybe a decision you, you, you make that with their help or, or, um, you know, just maybe some, some of the framework that you give them. So, uh, it was more like that, you know, I asked a few people, uh, Hey, you know, I'd like to, I want to get into college coaching, you know, if you have any, have any advice for me, anything I, you think I should be doing, you know? I love that. I love so, that because Chris, it's, I, it's, it's a hundred percent. I love helping people get to where they want to go. Like, and so I think most coaches take pride in that. And sure. so, so my, I am now going to do what I can to try to help you be, you know, get to where you want to go and how you want to get there. Um, and you know, I think invested is probably the right word. So I think that's true. The second, the second part is the idea of working for free. I know that's sort of that, <laughs> not easy. Yeah, yeah. Like, like some people would say, don't work for free. Value your time or value yourself. Versus other people, I've met a lot of people, especially in sports, that absolutely have worked for free. Um, you know, I remember talking to Stan Caston, who at one point ran the Atlanta Braves, the Atlanta Hawks, and the Atlanta Thrashers at, at once. And, you know, he literally showed up to like the Atlanta Braves offices and was like, I want, I want to come work. Like, what do you guys want me to do? And they were like, what? He's like, yeah, you know, just what can I do to help? <laughs> like, like he's a mover or something. And like, let me pick up this chair and help. But I think, I think there is, there is value in, in volunteering or whatever it well, might be. But yeah. talk, talk about that well, from your perspective. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously I think everyone comes from a different you know, socioeconomic background. Um, you know, my, my parents are not wealthy by any stretch of the imagination, but, you know, collectively, uh, with the help of some, you know, some people, uh, you know, uh, my parents, uh, you know, my, my, my grandmother, my aunt, you know, I was able to do that for, you know, to, for three years, to be honest. Uh, and, and each time that I stayed doing that, I turned down, full-time positions that that paid more money because I, I was really trying to make an investment in in what I thought could be uh, a career. Um, You know, did did that all make sense? Um, I would say, you know, maybe to this point it has, because I still have a job. So that's good Uh, because it's not an easy profession to keep having a job in. But uh, I would say, Brian, like, you know, if you can, if you can do it, it's a tool in a toolbox, right? Uh, not everyone can, um, but if you can, it, it can, you know, there's very few organizations, uh, even at the highest levels, that when they see someone who is bright, who is passionate, who is, uh, you know, loyal, trustworthy, uh, are going to turn them down for free work, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so, uh, and, you know, as, a, as competitive as the sports world is. Um, there's, there's not a lot of, you know, there's not a lot of real paying jobs for entry level people, you know, who have no experience. Uh, so if you can get past that, you know, ego wise, um, I think you could almost look at everybody in our business, you know, outside of the guys who are the athletes who, you know, when they come out they're they're going to be commanding salaries. Uh, everyone else is sort of in that category. How do I make it work? How do I survive early on and and get this experience and see if I can prove my worth to somebody who might be willing to pay me one day to do this? So the way, Um, the the way I would crystallize that, I think, I think it is important to say like, Hey, everybody's in a different position and what they need and what they're able to do. 
But I think when we're right out of college, that's the best opportunity to take a risk. And I think I remember when I graduated college, I was like, man, I just want to, I, I need to be making money and I want to make X. And like, <laughs> I was so focused on that. And I had a mentor tell me, uh, he, he was a successful real estate guy. And he was like, like, dude, go, go live somewhere random. Like go, you know, take a job. I remember I told him once I said, yeah, this guy's got a better job than me. And he goes, well, how do you, how do you define a good job? And I go, well, he's making more money. And the guy was like, well, that doesn't mean that it's a better job for a 22 year old. <laughs> and, right. Exactly. And yeah. I think, yeah. I think a lot of kids when they graduate college think of that starting salary as being what is a good job and what is a bad job. And the reality is it's much more about what is going to create long-term success for you rather than sort of short-term gains. And I think that, that speaks to sort of everything in the sports world too, is like what's going to lead to long-term gains uh, as, a, as opposed to short-term success. And um, so I, it might not be working for free, but maybe it's I take a little less to go work for this person or for this company because they believe in development or they believe in uh, mentoring or whatever it might be. I think that would be the advice is go find someone who is really good at what they do and, and is going to care about you and is going to help help you and um, you know help develop you. I think that to me is the advice rather than the idea of is it working for free or not or what it might be. Um, yeah, I remember hearing uh, Gino Auriemma say this at uh, I was at a, a symposium at Nike in Oregon and I thought it was really good because it I think it sums up people who you know ultra successful people um, like him. You know, he always said, like, his thing was not any more complex than I wanted to learn things that I didn't know. <laughs> He's like, my my biggest passion was I wanted to learn stuff that I didn't know. So anybody who had any information for me that I didn't know, I wanted to try to learn it as, as it related to my field. Uh, and I remember he tells stories about actually being at UVA as, a, uh, as an assistant coach. And, you know, while he was learning a lot doing his job um you know the, the great coaches you know uh, in the acc on the men's side you know whether it be dean smith or um uh you know mike krzyzewski you know lefty Drizel, jim valvano you know all these guys were coaching in the league at that time he would go and put his ear uh, next to the wall in the locker room next wow. to theirs and listen to their, you know, pregame and halftime speeches. And, and I want to say that this is accurate. I, I think Bruce Arenas, who's the U.S. national soccer coach, would be in there with him. Yeah, he's a UVA uh, guy. Yeah, yeah. So when you think about guys on that level, uh, no matter how young they were or whatever they thought of themselves, I'm sure they had some of those traits like we talked about in terms of their their cockiness and performance. But those guys would would hide in the locker room and, and listen to other great coaches. I mean, I think it shows that, you know, whether you're 22 or however old you are, you know, being a lifelong learner is, is important. And uh, it starts, you know, at that early age. And I don't think many people are going to be paying you to learn things at 22 years old. You know? That's beautiful. There's two things that, that click with me there. One is curiosity is like one of the best attributes, uh, one of the most linked attributes for success. And then the second thing is, we all steal ideas. Like, like the idea that I would have an original concept or an idea that just comes to me, like I'm struck by lightning and all of a sudden I've got this brilliant idea is, is kind of crazy to me. Like our ideas are all innovation. It's very rarely invention. 
And, you know, it's, it's innovated by our high school coaches or our parents or our siblings or our friends or, you know, you know, putting our ear on a locker room might be stealing in a different yeah. way, but like, it's all stealing. Like, I think the, the best coaches, the best athletes, like I'm really interested in Isaiah Thomas who plays the, the new Isaiah Thomas for the Celtics, because, you know, here's a guy who was, you know, drafted 60th in the NBA is five foot, nothing, and is playing in the all-star game and is an MVP MVP candidate. And if you listen to him talk, he will steal from Floyd Mayweather, Russell Wilson, Tom Brady, um, Isaiah Thomas, the, I call him the original Isaiah Thomas, um, <laughs> you know, but he just takes things from all these different guys from a mentality or an approach. And he uses story all the time of what he's learned from those guys. And I think, you know, we often say like, oh, well, you know, Kobe's not going to be Michael. Like he's got to just be Kobe. But you better believe Kobe took things from Michael and Magic sure. and Larry and all these guys and, and his dad. Um, and it influenced who Kobe became and LeBron's doing the same thing. And so the idea is not to be like that person, but you definitely want to steal from them. Yeah. Um, I think, I think in, in, in very few field in, in every field there, there are probably some innovators, you know, I think we can all point to them. I'm sure you can in your, in your field. And, you know, I'm sure in basketball, uh, you know, you could point to guys like Pete Carrill or Dean Smith, uh, you know, uh, you know, maybe, maybe Mike D'Antoni with some of the things he's done offensively. Um, you know, there, there certainly are innovators, uh, but the people who I, I remember hearing somebody say, like the the people who tinker wind up getting the most out of some of those ideas. You know, like uh, Steve Steve Jobs didn't invent the sort of MP3, but you know, he kind of took that concept and and makes it like an incredible product. You know, so. I think those that tinker uh, on some of those great ideas, maybe not always the innovators. So I don't think you can be too prideful about tinkering or, or stealing and things like that, because I think ultimately, like you said, when you look at it, there's not a lot of original ideas going around. Yeah, the way I look at it is in, an inventor, like invents something that's never been done before. An innovator takes something and then builds on it. So like, yeah. the way I look at it is like, like an innovator will – We'll take the dribble drive motion and then, you know, run with it. Or, you know, we'll take the four corners offense or the Princeton offense and, and change something different. I think those innovators are, or the triangle offense and they, they innovate off of it. Um, so I think, I think that's right. And, you know, I think, I think looking around and, and understanding that you can blend ideas and blend concepts, um, is, is really special. Um, okay. So back, so you're at Mason now. Uh, you're working your way. How long were you at Mason for? Give us the time. Uh, I was I was there nine years. I was there three years in that sort of administrative uh, role, uh, but I was involved, you know, almost every facet of the program. Even back then, you could, uh, you know, I could work camps where some of our prospects were there. I learned a lot about recruiting, uh, doing that. I went to a lot of high school games locally that was sort of you're allowed to do that back then so i really those three years were really like uh, uh be like being in you know be like being dc area medical school for for basketball you know just going up and down uh learning the dc area there and then uh and then the last six were you know as in the assistant coach role 
Uh, so that was nine years. Uh, and, you know, obviously a great nine years. We went to Final Four in 2006. Um, you know, went back to NCAA tournament a few times, had a lot of success, and, and you know, really had a great run there and coached a lot of really, really good guys, good players, and, you know, great memories. When you, when you look at the Final Four team, what, what would you put your finger on that made that team special? Um, you know, I, I think the lesson, you know, I always kind of look back and say, you know, what, what was the lesson? The lesson was don't allow people to put limits on you, you know. Uh, you know, at that time, remember, this is – we were really the first ones. I mean, it was before Butler. It was before VCU and Wichita State and – um, you know, to that point, we always joke like Kent State had gotten to the Elite Eight, I think, in 2002. Is that the and Antonio S- Gates team? Is that what? Yeah, they went to the Elite Eight. I forgot who they lost to, but uh, that team was sort of the one that, you know, you know, obviously UMass had gone with Cal, and uh, but Cal was a, was a different beast. They had great players, they had Marcus Camby, but um. You know, prior to that, I don't. I don't think it was like. I think it was like Penn, and Indiana State. You know, with Larry Bird. So, um, you know, we kind of looked at like, oh, we, maybe we could be like Kent State. They went to the Elite Eight. That would be awesome. You know, uh, the the Sweet Sixteen had really been the benchmark for mid-major teams, and so I think you know the lesson from those guys was, you know, hey, don't let anybody put a limit on you. You know, those limits are really false they're they're just uh you know they don't exist you know uh and so you know i think we're a little bit like we always joke that we're like the roger bannister of of mid-major basketball because all of a sudden we do it you know davidson gets close two years later with curry and then and then obviously butler vcu and wichita state do it so uh why do you think that we do that why why do you think like we as humans um like like I just I always laugh when, for example, the Super Bowl. Let's just go there. Like they're down twenty eight to three, and everybody, is, like even my instinct is it's over. Like why, why do we as humans go toward like this is impossible? And we just like make it logical in our head, and we, yeah. we try to because we probably try to think logically, right? And, and history is such a good, you know, history is typically a good um, way to predict the future. Uh, but certainly not, not the, uh, not the only way. And, and, uh, yeah, I think, we, you know, we can all be a little too, too logical with, uh, with ourselves sometimes as, as, you know, as we think about our, our own success, you know, our own limits, it's easy to, you know, easy to do that and, and probably a little bit safe to do that. You know, that's what I think it is. I think it's, we'd rather, you know, just, I think there's sort of risk aversion there of like yeah. rather just, you know, be on that side and not embarrass ourselves by going out on a limb. Uh, and I think if, as a team, if you can fight that and say, yeah, we've got a little crazy in us, like we're going to be illogical. Um, man, how special is that? Because to me, that's what sports is all about is, is the illogical. It's not, if it was just logical all the time, it'd be boring and stupid. And who would want to watch that? Um, it's the illogical stuff that, that makes it special. I mean, I think that's, that's like what's awesome about it. Yet as a coaching staff, you want your guys to make logical decisions, uh, both on the, on the court and off the court. Um, so it's balancing like, all right, we want them to be logical, but we also want them to be dreamers. 
Um, well, and I think that's I think this has been well documented. I, I know you and I have talked about, you know, Dr. Bob Rotella uh, visiting with that team in uh, in the fall and, and said, hey, you know, close your eyes, dream the dream, the biggest dream you can have. And and Lamar Butler, uh, who was our starting two guard. And, you know, he said, hey, I dreamed that we you know, went to the final four and all the guys laughed. And and he you know, Dr. Bob was like, you know, why are you guys laughing? Like, you know, do you not think it's possible if, you know, why not? Why not you guys? You know, you, you're going to believe in somebody else rather than yourself. Uh, and, and he said, well, you know, if you believe this, then you've got to start looking at your competition differently. You know, don't watch Duke. Don't watch Carolina. Don't watch, you know, whoever the, the great programs are. Don't watch them as a fan of college basketball. You need to start watching them like, okay, how do we match up? How do we beat these guys? And, uh, I, you know, you couldn't make it up. I was there in the room when it happened. And, you know, we get to March and, you know, we're in the Final Four and Lamar Butler's on the cover of Sports Illustrated. It's amazing. You know? For those that don't and, know, for those that don't know Rotella, uh, Rotella, Dr. Bob Rotella was a professor at, at Virginia, which is where him and Coach Laranega, their paths crossed. And uh, he has written a ton of books on sort of sports psychology and golf and uh, you know, has worked with a ton of pro golfers and also with some, with some college basketball, pro basketball and, and other athletes as well. Um, but certainly has been sort of the godfather of sports psychology specifically in golf. Um, so that's awesome. So you're at Mason uh, and just take me to, to the transition to Miami and, and what that's been like for you the last few years. Yeah. Um, you know, we came to Miami and I think, you know, I got to give Coach Larnaga a lot of credit because, you know, I think people felt like he was, um, you know, very comfortable at Mason. We had just won the regular season in the CAA. We'd won 15 straight games in the regular season and the CAA got three teams in the NCAA tournament that year it was the most in, in league history. And, and we really dominated the league in the regular season. Uh, got upset in the semifinal by VCU, and then VCU obviously shocked the smart. They go to the Final Four. Sort of the rest is history there. But um, we had a very good team coming back, and we had Luke Hancock coming back, who wound up being the MVP of the Final Four with Louisville. But he played for us at, at George Mason, and um, it would have been very easy for Coach to say, "Hey, I'm just going to finish out my career. Things are going great." Um, and yet the challenge of, of coaching the ACC and, and uh, sort of take, making one more move, uh, you know, he, he sort of took a leap of faith. Um, and I think to this point, it's worked out very well. We've, you know, been able to get to the point where we've had some success. We won the ACC in 2013 and went to two Sweet 16s. Um, you know, feel like we've been able to get some momentum and uh, behind the program and, gotten it to the point where we're pretty relevant even in a league that is so, so difficult. So, you know, that's been great. It's been great to be around the best, you know, really the best league and, and the, a lot of the best coaches, players that there are in college basketball. And, and that part of it has been fun to sort of test the way we do things uh, at the highest level to see if it would stand, um, stand up against, you know, the best. And so interesting to me, I was just having a conversation the other day about this with, with a friend of mine and, it is an interesting concept when you look at, do you make the leap when you have established things? And look, like 
Uh, he could have stayed at Mason. Well, you never know with college basketball, things change so quickly, but right. you, would, you would think he would have been grandfathered in for life. Right. And like, um, you know, when you, when you're a trailblazer like that and, and you know, your family's there and you can just sort of stay pat. And I, I look around and I see, all right, well, Brad Stevens decided to go to the NBA. Shaka decided to go to Texas. Uh, but Mark Few is the guy that I really think of as, you know, staying at Gonzaga. And I, I, I'm not saying all these places are exactly the same and there's different, there's all kinds of differences that exist, but you know, I, I, it's interesting to just see some guys have gone, some guys have not, some have shifted. Um, and I think there is this idea, like I have a saying that complacency is the enemy of success. Uh, and the moment you become complacent somewhere, uh, you're in trouble. Um, but it's interesting to see guys who decided to stay like a Mark Few and then continue to build on what he's done. And then you've seen other guys like Brad Stevens decide to leave and go to another level and he's having success in, in Boston. Uh, and then Shaka obviously leaving VCU and going to a school like Texas and all kinds of challenges that exist there. But to me, I, I'm always fascinated by those things. I think at the end of the day, it always comes back to the individual and you know what the human wants and, um, or what that team of coaches want. Um, but it's, it's just a fascinating dynamic to see as for someone on the sidelines of it. Um, because I think you can make an argument any way, any direction that you want to make for it or against it. Uh, it just, it just depends on the human. Um, that's yeah. And I think it, like, you, you know, that old, the, the Steve Jobs saying, right. You connect the dots, uh, you can always connect the dots backwards. You can't always connect them forward. You know, you can always say, Hey, why this turned out to be a great move. And, you talk about the way things change in college basketball. And we, you know, we have a coach in our league that was fired mid season. And this is a guy who's made four out of five NC tournaments. And we, we played them on uh, new year's Eve in the first league game in our place. And they were 11 and two and probably favored in the game against us. Uh, you know, we were fortunate to win the game and, and things, you know, were, you know, spiraled for them a little bit in terms of performance, but, um, I think it goes back to, like you said, purpose. You know, if, if you feel like, hey, your purpose is good where you are, the things you're doing, the challenges, you know, are there. Uh, the You know, I think alignment, as you, as you probably, uh, you know, well know from your, your dad's experience, you know, being in charge of a team, like, you know, the people that you work for, you every, is everyone aligned, you know? That's important because I think that, change, that, change, that changes, you know? Uh, we we were had we, our president was leaving George Mason and, and he was uh, you know a great friend of ours and you know so that that played into it and I think uh, you know those decisions are never easy that's for sure absolutely well here's what I want to do to sort of end this and I know we've been talking sure. for a while but I want to put you on the hot seat I like to do this with a lot of my guests sure um, and so what I'm going to do is I call it preferences so yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just going to go through these and. I want you to think about this from, from your coaching perspective. Um, so think about this as a coach. Do you prefer preparing or performing? Oh, man. Uh, that's, 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 it's hard. I, I would say, uh, I would, I would say as much as I would want to say performance, I would say preparing uh, because when I look back, and I sort of try to figure out what's what was more fun looking back. It's always the pr- the preparation, you know. You the pre- performance is good too, but but the the preparation. Do you prefer coaching yes sir players or why players? Um, I, I like 
I like why guys because I think that you can you can get better aligned if they're asking that question. Sometimes yes sir means I'm not paying attention. Hmm. Well, like I hear basketball kids all the time. I'm sure I got you. I got you, coach. Yeah, yeah, that's a lot what I'm of saying. I mean, <laughs> yeah, when I hear that, I'm like, you know, it, 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 yes sir might mean I, I I don't I'm scared to ask the question. <laughs> Uh, you prefer system or autonomy? Mm, I, w- I would say I would say autonomy. Perfection or progression? Uh, progression. Do you prefer having the most valuable player or the most improved player? Uh, I would say having the most valuable player it makes it a little bit easier. That's for sure. Resume or eulogy? Uh, eulogy. <laughs> your generation or your parents' generation? I would say my generation. Evaluations or descriptions? Evaluations, for sure. Positive feedback or negative feedback? Um, uh, positive. Culture or talent? Culture, although I think it's an overused word these days. Yeah, we're really uh, – I actually want to work on an assessment that uh, goes into a team. So let's say I'd go to Miami basketball and I'd say, all right, what is your culture? And I'd assess for it. And then I'd say, what are you, uh, what is your culture? That would be the first assessment. The second would be, what do you want your culture to be? Um, and then the third would be – and let's say I use this for an NBA team. It would be, all right, like assess that player to see if they fit your culture. Um, and then the fourth phase would be, um, all right, we're going to develop our players within our culture and, and develop our culture. And I know you, you sort of said it's overrated. I think one of the reasons that it is overrated or overused is because we're not it, – It's it doesn't really – I think people say it just to say it. They say it yeah, not yeah. To, not not because they really believe in it. The two words that I hear all the time are culture and development. Like we're going to develop our guys and we're going to have a great culture. And I, I've, I've been around so many different teams at so many different levels and very few really care about the culture and really care about developing their guys. Um, but I think the ones that are able to do both of those are successful. So it's sort of – uh, you know, I think, uh, yeah, a culture of development is good too, you know, beautiful. <laughs> I think that's what sometimes it's like, you know, that that's what get missed. Yeah. Like, you know, Hey, we have a framework and a culture, but you know, guys make mistakes. That's, that's why we're here. If they didn't make mistakes, then they wouldn't really need us now, would they? You know? Absolutely. Um, momentum or the moment. Mm, uh, the moment. Pumped up or calm down? Calm down. Grit or grind? Yeah, I would say grit. So this is a word like like grind. Um, I, coaches especially, they're the ones who I'm they like. They love that. They love that one. On oh, the grind. Yeah. Oh, I love grinding. But so do yeah. hockey players. So do golfers. So do yeah. people on Wall Street. Uh, talk about an overused word and, and like it, it sort of gets at me because, um, I think they just use those two, uh, together. Like we're gritty and, and we grind. Um, and 
Like, I think there is a time for grinding, of course, especially if you're a college coach and you have to be yeah. on the road and recruiting and, and doing yeah. things. But if you're just grinding your way through life, like have a nice life. Like there, there's also, there's gotta be not, a, I don't want to say a balance cause that's, that's, well, everyone, I think everyone is willing to share their grind with yeah, you, yeah. but not like, not everybody's willing to share their grit with you. Like, or, or if they have any, you know what I mean? Like the, you know, uh, I'm, I'm most impressed with grit, right? I'm most impressed with people who have overcome things or have been dealt a couple blows and, and been able to figure it out. So, yeah. I, and nobody's like posting uh, on Instagram like, hey, I got turned down for these three jobs and yet I still keep doing this and, you know, I'm not making enough money or anything, but I still keep doing this. And no, no one's tweeting that out, you know? fascinating i love that uh would you prefer to be liked or respected i think the older you get you know you probably feel like respected is important yeah transformational leadership or transactional leadership oh i would definitely say transformational love Uh, love winning or hate losing hate losing it's it's that's a curse right but it's true the, the, the wins never feel as good as the losses hurt, you know. Risk taker or rule follower? I would say risk taker. In some ways, <laughs> in other ways, the guy who's been in the same uh, job for fifteen years, people would say <laughs> you don't take risks. <laughs> we'll have another conversation all about that, maybe. Off, yeah, right. Off exactly. <laughs> uh, fear of failure or fearlessness. Um, yeah, I think, I think you probably, I probably would say the the motivation begins with a fear of failure. And when you can get to a certain point, then you sort of get that fearlessness. Uh, but I, I think a lot of the people who are really successful early on, you have that fear of failure. I agree. And I think it's a story that doesn't get told enough is that, uh, there has to be some, some fear of failure. There has to be a, you know, this is, I, there's no going back. Like I, I will do whatever right. it takes to not make this happen. Yeah. And I think, I think we often hear people at the top say, don't fear failure. Um, but they feared failure uh, when, when they were getting. Yeah. They, they can, yeah. They can only tell again. They can only tell the story after the fact it's hard while you're in it. You know? Yep. Uh, Balance or specific obsession? Yeah, unfortunately, I think, again, it's another thing that a lot of people, uh, or at least people who are striving to be successful, have to deal with. But, uh, you know, I would say probably a little bit of a singular obsession. I think, you you know, at least for me, you know, being married, having a child, that, that, that helps with the balance part of it. Um, you know, you cer- certainly, I don't think, listen, I know how hard you work at your job, like, I'm sure you don't have a million hobbies, you know, like I, I don't have a million, I don't have any hobbies. I don't think, you know, I try, I try, but, uh, I've wanted to take up playing the guitar for a while and haven't gotten there yet at some point. Yeah. I mean, it's, when it's I'm like 75 like years old, I'm going to be a bad yeah, exactly, guitar player. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Disassociate from pressure or embrace it. I think you learn to embrace it as the only way. Cause there's so much of it, uh, in the sports world, at least, you know, you, you have to feel excited about it, you know? I love it. Head or gut? 
would say head. Awesome. Well, I know you got that that big shiny dome of yours, and uh, yeah, you, yeah. You, you guys you guys have a bunch of important games coming up. So, um, Coach, I just want to thank you. Uh, we're doing this talk late on a Sunday night and I know you guys have a big game tomorrow. So I really appreciate no you giving me the time and I've enjoyed our conversations over the years and I know we will have many more of them uh, going forward as well. well. I appreciate it, man. Thanks a lot. And uh, yeah, appreciate you doing this uh, podcast with me, but, but also with so many other people, I, uh, you know, gives me good material when I'm on the elliptical or, uh, or what have you, you know, maybe going for a little bit of run uh, listen to you because uh, I think you've, you've got some really neat people on here and uh, really, really thought provoking. Thanks. Well, hopefully you listen to this while you're on there and you don't fall asleep while you're, yeah, uh, I, while you're on there. <laughs> no doubt. All right, man. All right. Thanks, coach. Appreciate it. All right, bye. Bye. So thanks again to coach Chris Caputo for coming on the beyond the surface podcast. We recorded this last week. It was Sunday night, late Sunday night. And then the following day, University of Miami played UVA. So we were actually doing it from Coach's hotel room. And they went on to beat UVA, which was a big win for their program with where they're at right now. And then uh, later in the week, they also beat Duke. So they had a couple of big wins. And University of Miami has had a lot of success against Duke the last few years since Coach Larinaga and Coach Caputo have been at Miami. So you probably saw that win and Duke, of course, has been sort of the bar, not just in the ACC, but in all of college basketball. So they're doing something right down at University of Miami. And I think Coach Caputo has certainly been a big part of their success at Miami. You know, when they first left George Mason, they were certainly comfortable there. And it was a big risk to go to Miami. And Coach Larinaga was certainly not a young pup when they made that transition. I think a lot of people doubted whether they were going to be able to help build that program at Miami and they certainly have built them into a consistent winner and it's really been impressive. A few takeaways from my conversation with Coach Caputo. Number one, taking action, just going out and doing. He told the story about being in the hotel uh, when the Final Four was in New York and just seeing those people up close and personal and realizing that they're human beings and making that sort of normal for him and him seeing that maybe I could do this one day, I think helped him as a kid. Uh, achieve his dreams later in his career. And then with that in mind, taking the action to work for free for a guy like Coach Larinaga and networking and finding a mentor and the importance of mentorship and what, what Coach Larinaga has meant to him uh, is, is clear. And we sort of talked about what is a good job. And I think one of the best jobs you can have as a young person is finding somebody who's really good at their craft, allowing them to mentor you, learning from them, observing them, mirroring them figuring out what you might be able to do that they can't do. What are their weaknesses? And maybe they're your strengths. And then adding value based on that. Which leads to my next point, which is Coach Caputo talked about his high school coach and the impact that his coach had on his life and his desire to have a similar impact on kids. So he talked about the X's and O's are one thing and the ability to have the do the X's and O's is one thing. But it's a whole nother thing if you have purpose in what you're doing and understand the purpose in what you're doing and the desire to help people. And so that was really something that, that I hung on to from our conversation. Of course, I really enjoyed the story that he told about Dr. Bob Rotella coming to George Mason and the effect that he had on the team of having them carry that vision of cutting down the nets in the Final Four and actually believing that it's possible and what belief 
can do and how belief can impact not just a team, but each individual on that team. And when you have collective belief, what that can do. And people forget that what they did was really considered to be impossible at that time. A mid-major going to the Final Four was really unheard of. I think without that vision, maybe they're not able to achieve what they wanted to achieve. And you could hear Coach Caputo really talk about having the vision and believing in that vision and then believing that that vision can come true. And I think for all of us, it's important to have a vision and to never lose the belief in ourselves and in the person next to us. The last big takeaway for me is just this idea that Coach Caputo is a lifelong learner, that he is not afraid to ask questions. He's not afraid to read something or listen to a podcast or watch a show or talk to someone like me and maybe steal something. We both are people that are constantly stealing from others. I think that's what great coaches do. I think that's what great performers do. They find out what are those people doing well and how can I implement that in my performance. So his ability to constantly learn, constantly ask questions is why he came on this podcast. He came on this podcast at 9.30 on a Sunday night And they're about to play a massive game against University of Virginia on a Monday. A lot of people would have said, I don't have time or I'm too busy. Yet Coach Caputo made the time because he probably figured maybe I can learn something from this conversation. Maybe I can learn something from talking out loud and learning from myself. Or maybe Brian has one thought that might help our team win a game. I think when you believe that thoughts can lead to action and the way that we think and what we how we process information can lead to winning games. I think that's really next level stuff. So once again, I appreciate Coach Caputo coming on and sharing all his knowledge, his journey, his mindset, and hopefully you gained a few good nuggets from Coach Caputo as well. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Surface, and we'll talk again real soon.